0: You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Neil Hughes. Victor, how are you? I'm excited. How are you? Excited. I'm I'm doing well. I'm enthusiastic. (laughs) That's good. I want to talk about a really, really big thing. Okay. Okay. I want to talk about a six point five inch iPhone ten because <laughs> that's yeah, really big,
0: yeah. you know, this is an interesting week for rumors. Um, we're expecting, you know, iPhone ten is kind of um Apple's successor to the um uh, the 4.7 inch iphone so essentially the same form factor physically but the edge to edge screen just gives you more real estate and so what's the logical progression of that well we don't have a edge to edge plus version yet and so the rumor is that come next year um apple is going to take essentially the same form physical form factor of the iphone what is currently the iphone 8 plus and all the previous plus models which has been the same for three years now and um they're going to make it edge to edge. So, an iPhone 10 Plus, or whatever you want to call it. That's not the surprise. The, the 6.5 inch phone, I think that's kind of, everybody kind of accepts that that's coming next year. What was more interesting um, this week, and, and again, these are rumors, and this is from everybody's favorite analyst, Hayden Ming Chi Kuo, who again has a pretty good track record on this stuff. <clears throat> not perfect, but pretty good. He also says that Apple is going to do a 6.1 inch LCD phone. Now, that's interesting, and it makes sense for a few reasons. Um, And one of the main reasons that it makes sense is he also reported a few months ago that Apple is planning to ditch the home button on all new fall 2018 phones. Now, if Apple Apple were to ditch the home button for Face ID on all those phones coming out next year, what are they going to do? Have big bezels at the top and bottom of the device? Or are they going to have it be... Uh, uh, you know, closer to edge to edge. And so the, the idea there I think is, does Apple make the phone smaller with the same screen size or do they stretch the screen a little bit? They can't do the same edge to edge thing with an LCD screen as they can with an OLED display. So it's not gonna be like the iPhone 10, but they will ditch the home button supposedly. So I think what you'll see is just smaller bezels around the outside. Or maybe Apple just goes with a bigger LCD screen. And so that's where the 6.1-inch rumor is coming from. Now, obviously, we're a ways out, you know, uh, close to a year away that, that we would even hear about this phone, you know, next September. A lot can change. But the guy does have a pretty good track record, so you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. Uh, we'll see where it goes and if the rumors keep circulating around this 6.1-inch phone. But the idea is that it would be kind of a successor to the uh, iPhone 8 Plus um, without going to the, um, you know, over $1,000 price point. So imagine, you know, like $750, $850 for that phone.
1: Yeah. Which is in line with what phone pricing has been for the iPhone in
0: Right, and and without, if they have Face ID and they can figure out all the manufacturing issues with the true depth camera by then, and they don't have to pay the costly price for an OLED display, then it makes some sense. It also aligns with our iPad rumors that we've had. The rumors that the 2018 iPad, because again OLED is so expensive, the 2018 iPad will stick with LCD and it will ditch the home button as well and switch to Face ID. And as we talked about on last week's episode, it makes a lot of sense. And so what do you have? You have a thinner bezel around the outside, not an edge to edge display, but a thinner bezel. And that allows you to either have a a smaller and lighter device or potentially squeeze a few more inches of screen on real estate onto there. Um, So if they're gonna do that with the iPad, uh, then they could do it with a lower level iPhone too. Uh, They've already established this year that they can launch three new iPhones in a year and do so pretty successfully. So uh, the idea that they would do three new iPhones next year, not that crazy. So it's looking like, according to Ming-Chi Kuo, and uh, unfortunately for people who like smaller phones, we're looking at a 6.5-inch, a uh, 5.8-inch successor to this year's model, and then in the middle, a cheaper 6.1-inch model, uh, that would have Face ID as well and ditch the home button, but not have the edge-to-edge display. The rumor as well is that Apple will do an upgrade to the iPhone SE next March separate from those phones, but that's not expected to be anything fancy. That's just expected to be probably just a processor and camera bump on the current iPhone SE design, keeping the same price points at 350 and 450
1: Yeah, you have to keep the price point because the price point is what enables people to buy them On a budget, people to buy them. uh, You know, if they've got a different uh, income, yeah. I mean, they do. They do fudge the the price price points a little bit, and it makes it possible
0: for other countries. The SE has gone up and down by fifty dollars a few times, Um, and then the Plus, starting last year, went up by twenty bucks. And then because Apple consolidated the um, capacities this year, um, the prices overall got more expensive. So you're getting more bang for your buck, but you're also spending more. Um, so Apple does fudge the prices a little bit, so I wouldn't be surprised if like, for example, next year, next spring, uh, we get an iPhone SE that starts at 400 instead of 350. Um, but, uh, I don't see it going much beyond that.
1: It really needs to stay in that, that 300 price point yeah. because, you know, you, you have to have a phone that you can offer at the Walmart and have Walmart's service contract that you sign you up for, make it be the free phone. And right. doing that on the, the $350 phone is a reasonably acceptable thing to do, a reasonably easy thing to do financially. Doing it for the $1,000 phone or the $750 or the $850 phone is a different ballgame.
0: And you know me, I love my small phones, so I'm waiting for this technology to trickle down to the iPhone SE level and I can get myself an edge-to-edge dual camera, uh, I, like four-inch form factor type phone. I think that'll be awesome, but not in the near future, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm cradling my head and my hands at this, by the way. Um <laughs> <laughs> it, the phone is too big. Come on, man. The phone is not too I, big. Someone tweeted at me. The phone n- tw- someone tweeted at me about this yesterday about, you know, usability of the iPhone 10 and if they found that they were having trouble holding on to it. And I, and I uh, uh I wrote back. I uh, no, I think it was an email actually someone emailed me. And I agreed. Um the phone's too big and the and again, I really like the phone a lot. But the glass back and the stainless steel edges Are a little slippery. And I've actually found that, like, and this is my fault. This is not Apple's fault or whatever. Um, But I find that, like, I set it poorly, like on the edge of a table or something, and it slides off on its own because it's heavier and it's slipperier than previous phones. So it is, it's a little big. So you put a case on it? Uh, I've been using it without a case, believe it or not. And so I'm inevitably going to break this stupid thing, and I'm going to be, and I'm going to hate myself. I was going to send you cases,
1: by the way. I had,
0: I have uh, Apple's leather case, and I like it. It's fine. Um, But because the phone is so big, I've been using it without a case. But I do have that, and I got a cheap um, battery case for it, Um, although I haven't really needed to use that either because the the battery life has been great, but it's one of those nice just-in-case things. Um, I got a a battery case that essentially doubles the battery life, and the battery case charges through inductive key charging. So,
1: yeah. So, I... I think what we're seeing here is we, we already knew that going to Face ID was something that Apple was all in on. We already knew that this was a sort of split, a break between the evolution of the home button going back to the original iPhone and the new evolution of these gestural interfaces going forward. So it makes complete sense to me that we would see three phones with out a home button, with edge-to-edge and with Face ID.
0: Yeah, but I think the loser there is anybody who likes a, the home button, which a lot of people are going to still be clinging to, but Apple will still sell legacy models for that. And B, um, who like the smaller 4.7-inch form factor? Uh, because now if you want that smaller phone, according to the rumors, we'll see what what comes next year. But if you want that smaller phone, you either got to go with an older model or you got to splurge for the iPhone X, one or whatever. Right. So my question it. to you is if
1: you like a 4.7-inch phone, what yeah. is it that you really like about that? It's probably the width because that's what you feel most when you're gripping the phone in your hand. The length mm-hmm. is not your your deepest concern, so having the yeah. additional
0: length, which is really what's going on there, is is not a big deal, is it? Um, I mean, it is if you want to use, like, for example, um, I use Control Center a lot, and it's it's basically a two handed phone now. So,
1: hmm.
0: or even accessing Notification Center. You know, one of the reasons that I liked and still like my iPhone SE is because of that one handed use and that grip, so when I use the the four the four inch phone, um, I kind of uh, just grip it in my hand, you know, the sides, and that's it. But with the bigger phone, I find that I um, cradle it like with my pinky underneath.
1: Yeah, it. see, I think the four point seven and the five point is these are the same. Right, that, that that's what we have currently. That's the iPhone ten is the five point eight inch. The four point seven yes. is an iPhone six, for example. Or a success,
0: right? But it, but the iPhone 10 is basically the same size. It just has a much bigger screen because it's yes, the, precisely. So what I'm saying is a little is bit that, wider.
1: That not there, there is not a big difference between these in terms of fitting in your pocket, for example.
0: No, but there is a big difference in terms of price. Yes, and that is where if they do this next year and don't do a new 4.7 inch cheaper model, um, that's going to upset some people because people may not want to pay. Now, now maybe they take this year's iPhone 10 and knock that price down a little bit and then that makes people happy. I don't, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I don't know how this is going to play out. It'll be very interesting. Right.
1: So I think this is a 2-year progression to completely get rid of the home button.
0: I think that old habits die hard and you're going to see not only legacy phones like the iPhone 8 stick around in future years, you know, legacy when they become. Yeah, so that's you know, the iPhone
1: model. 8 sticks around next year, clearly. Yeah. But in 2 years is
0: it still there? I think so. Hmm. Because uh, here we are two years into the iPhone 6S cycle, and we still have that available for sale. And I think the main reason for that is because it has a headphone jack, and it's the last 4.7 and 5.5-inch models with headphone jacks. And as much as people are going to hear that and go, oh, let it go on the headphone jack, I don't care. But there's a reason that Apple continues to sell legacy devices. There's a reason that up until uh, last summer, you could still buy a MacBook Pro with a disk drive. Right,
1: now, now those, two, <laughs> that, those that are two different not go things quickly. that were conflating because the, the reason that you could buy the disk drive is because A, it continued to sell and there were professionals who had an actual need for it. The right. headphone jack and 6S are sticking around for a little longer because there are institutional sales, education, government, so forth. And people like it. That require that you sell a functionally compatible model and under contract, if we were going to buy a bunch of these things, you have to continue to provide a replacement that's exactly functionally compatible. So they're gonna have to have the headphone jack for another couple of years.
0: But but you know that consumer preference also plays into that for the same reason that Apple still sells a MacBook Air with full size USB ports. Why do they still and sell a MacBook Air with full size USB ports? What's going on there? They updated the processor in June at WWE. Wow. Because, wow. because well, you know, they they still have it around for two reasons. Number one, because some people like full size USB ports. Um, and two, it allows them to hit a nine hundred and ninety dollar price point that they can't hit with the twelve inch MacBook yet because the technology costs too much okay. and it would kill them. So margins. the
1: minute they can hit that price point with the twelve inch MacBook.
0: Then then the then the MacBook Air is dead. Okay.
1: So going on the same theme, we were also talking, you and I, about a 2018 iPad Pro with Face ID and an updated 8-core A11X chip. Yeah. This is, is basically taking the Pro and revising it. it. You know, the Pros have to keep up as well. And, you know, the, the, the current processor is is great, but an A11X for Pro to handle that additional screen, to handle the, uh, the you know, to have a lower nanometer process and generally make it more efficient is the idea here.
0: Yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting that Apple keeps calling these by you know they brand it you know last year as the iPhone 10 and the iPhone or I'm sorry the the I'm sorry the A10 uh, came out last year and then it was followed up by the A10X in the um, in the iPad Pro and so the assumption is that this year it'll be the same process we have the A11 Bionic as they call it and then next spring or summer when they do new iPads it'll be the A11X processor. Um, and while they get the same branding, they're actually very different chips in a lot of ways. When they do this, um, I, I don't know why they why they do it that way. But so the rumor here is that the A11X chip is going to be based on a new, smaller, seven nanometer process, um, and it will have a two more cores. So one high performance core and then one battery saving core. So you're looking at eight cores in this chip. Up from 6 in the uh, in the iPhone 10 and iPhone 8 Plus. Um, and presumably it would do more RAM too because they've been doing 4 gigs of RAM, I believe, in the iPad Pros. So um, the chips keep getting more and more powerful and the, the software, um, not so much. And that that's where – Is that your Matthew uh, there, McConaughey line? <laughs> there's going to have to be a reckoning here somewhere because iOS 11, while being a huge leap forward um, in terms of the usability and productivity of the iPad, um, still not quite there yet, especially with uh, the these apps available in the App Store. You know, we need to start getting more professional-grade apps that really are taking advantage of it. And, and again, iOS 11 is awesome. Um, it's way more productive, and I find myself uh, having more fun working with it, and I enjoy it. Uh, but you know, it would be nice to see some even basic form of cursor input or something like that. Uh, that would be optional that apps could tap into. Uh, something along those lines would be a major leap forward for making it a laptop replacement.
1: Yeah, and I feel like we're getting there, but we're far from there yet.
0: Yeah, you're you're right. And and these these. Devices keep getting more and more powerful. I'm really excited about this iPad next year. I held off this year. I tested the 10.5-inch iPad Pro, and I loved it. That 120-hertz Pro motion display is incredible. It's just it's such an impressive piece of hardware. But I still have my 12.9-inch iPad Pro from a couple years ago. I'm very happy with it. But you get me a 12.9-inch iPad Pro with this A11X processor, uh, Face ID, TrueDepth camera, um and a slightly smaller i would say i don't want a bigger screen i want it to be smaller with the bezel so a little bit lighter get it under a pound um and give me you know some form of a smart keyboard attachment with you know basic cursor input i'm i'm on board 100 then all then all we need are good third-party apps to actually let us podcast on the ipad yes Victor and I have been trying to do this for years, for those of you listening, and we we had some limited success at one point um, because um, Skype worked nicely, but uh, there were changes made to iOS and also to the Skype app in how Core Audio was handled, and it would not allow us to record um, and uh, broadcast at the same time with an external mic. And so you would have to basically use a line-in mic through uh, the headphone jack on the iPad, and so we, we just gave up, but we've been trying. And so if anybody's listening and has any ideas on how to efficiently podcast on an iPad or even an iPhone um, to allow two people to talk to each other remotely and also record it at the same time, um, we're all ears. We're interested because I, I would love to do it. I think that the iPad could be the perfect podcasting machine if it would play nice with external mics in a way that worked with third-party apps. But just goes back to what we're talking about. Professional-grade hardware, software is just not there yet. Yeah,
1: and there are a couple of applications for doing that that set up the VoIP call and handle the recording. And in some cases, even try and host the podcast. Uh, anchor.fm is one of those kinds of things. The thing that's held us back a little bit from that has been... We, we also like to go back and edit the podcast. And so we chop it up and we take out umzers and ahs and we speed it up a little bit. And we, we, we really try and tune it up to make it efficient for you to listen. And we are unable to do that when we get into the lock-in of one of those kinds of apps.
0: Or apps that require uh, or that use Apple's core audio in iOS. Mm. And then it defaults to the built-in microphone for some reason when you try to, when you try to plug in a, a lightning mic, which we, we own lightning mics. We, we've tried to do this. It's, it's frustrating, and, and I hope that, that Apple d- does something to make it easier for developers on that front, because it's clearly not just a developer thing. I think that the training wheels need to come off the iPad, and hopefully 2018 is the year that it starts to happen, even more so than it did in 2017.
1: For 2019, Apple's going to put a rear-facing 3D sensor on the phone.
0: Yeah, uh, this is uh, Bloomberg reported that this week, but they're about three months behind. Analyst Ming Chi Do we even um, trust the Bloomberg same thing. at this point? I think Bloomberg is. Uh, I you know I did the iPhone eight and iPhone ten rumor roundup a few months ago after the announcements came out, and what I found looking back because it's very easy to forget this stuff because there's so many publications just throwing out stuff or whatever, and we're covering it all, and you know it's you get you, it's hard to see the forest for the trees sometimes. So I went back and took a look. And Bloomberg mostly got stuff right. The problem was that they were always late. And so this is another great example of it. Ming-Chi well, said like three months ago that Apple is not going to do a 3D um, depth, true depth camera on the rear of the phone next year. They're going to wait till 2019. Um, and then Bloomberg like three months later weighs in and goes, oh, yeah, the same thing. Yeah. Well,
1: so it's one thing for them to, to be right and late when they're following what everyone else is saying. But the other side of that is when they try and do a scoop, and their scoops are wrong.
0: They did do that after the iPhone eight and ten unveiling in a big way. They claimed that Apple gimped the uh, the face th- ID TrueDepth yeah the face ID sensor the TrueDepth sensor on the iPhone ten in order to get it out the door. And Apple came out and said this is completely bogus. So that wasn't included in my rumor roundup because it was a story that broke later before the iPhone ten shipped, but. Uh, that's one that Apple specifically came out and said, you guys are full of it. And it's happened a couple of times. Hey, I mean, I live in a glass house here. I'm not going to insult anybody that's in the rumor game. Right. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm a reporter and I'm going to just report the facts. And if somebody gets stuff wrong, then I'm going to call it out. And, you know, sometimes we get stuff wrong too. We're human. Nobody, nobody's right on this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I used to work in the newspaper business. I have a journalism background. I'm not just some, uh, (laughs) <laughs> some you know blogger or whatever out here. I'm not looking to take pot shots or pick fights with anybody. So uh, no disrespect to the work that they do at Bloomberg. They're generally a pretty good publication, but they did blow it on that one. Okay.
1: Changing gears a little bit. One of the cool things that you saw recently was a, a movie where the last scene was shot on the iPhone.
0: Yeah, just last night I went and saw The Florida Project. And uh, somebody born and raised in Florida, it really – uh, stuck with me in a lot of ways. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was a great film. And this is not the first time that we've seen movies shot on the iPhone, but it's the
1: first time that we've seen movies that have had a theatrical release shot on the iPhone.
0: Wide releases, yeah. Wide release. um, there, there have been yeah, films I of mean, Sundance have been some- that
1: have been shot on the iPhone, for example. But yeah,
0: yeah, there have been commercials. There's been stuff here and there, yeah. But um, I think that the quality and, and convenience and where those two intersect... Um, is really where the iPhone is coming into its own as a serious tool for filmmakers. So Steven Soderbergh shot
1: a, uh, a thriller called unsane entirely on the iPhone and it's slated for a theatrical release next spring. This is, this is an interesting thing because shooting a feature for wide theatrical release with, um, with
0: phones is, is different, isn't it? It is. And, for those listening who aren't necessarily into film or whatever, um, Soderbergh's – this is this is not a lightweight. <laughs> this is a guy who uh, has his own distribution company. Um, he put out a movie earlier this year, Logan Lucky, under his distribution company that went on to make about $30 million. So this is not
1: – This is the guy that shot Ocean's Eleven and Aaron Brockovich.
0: Mm-hmm. This is he, not yeah, small. He, he has – yeah, he, he made his name a long time ago doing uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And he has made uh, um, countless films over the years. Uh, he, he's responsible for Magic Mike as well. Um, and he's always a little unconventional. He likes to – he's worked a lot with uh, non-actors. Like he did a, a action film called Haywire with uh, Gina Carano who is an MMA star um, who had no acting experience and she was the star of it um he did the girlfriend experience with an adult film star was uh, the lead actress in that one um he's he's done uh he did a, a, all the episodes of a television series on Showtime called The Nick um so he is a guy with a lot of experience in trying to do things differently and trying to reimagine um how entertainment is shot and distributed and presented and, and thought about and so uh, he has this film coming out Unsane um with a pretty good cast And he shot it in, like, a week and a half, which is, like, nothing for a feature-length film.
1: You know, normally a fast shoot is one month, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he apparently shot the entire thing on an iPhone. So, he shot it this summer. So, my best guess is he probably shot it on an iPhone 7 Plus um, this past summer. And... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I, I reached out to uh, 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 one of the distribution companies that's involved in the film, um, reached out to us after we published, and I, and I said I'd like to follow up because we, there were so many comments from people on twitter and and in the comments section on our site. Um, with questions about how they captured audio, how he edited. Because it was mentioned in the story that he was editing on the set. And the by the time the actors had wrapped a week and a half into the film, they got to see like an 80% cut of the film. So he's clearly trying to do stuff in a very different way. So I would be very curious to learn, like, is he using Final Cut? Um, what is the external mic uh, setup that he's using? Uh, is he using, you know, lenses or filters over the the physical lens on the, right. on the phone? So, so um,
1: classically... You know when I've seen uh, indie films shoot, and I've been on the set. You, you take the you have the cameras running separately, and then you have your audio being recorded into typically a Zoom, like a Zoom F8 kind of thing, uh, or yeah. the H6, which is what uh, we have going with our YouTube team, mm-hmm. for, yeah, which they use it for doing voiceovers. So you have that digitally yeah. recording all of the audio, and then those two things get recombined back into uh, one file in the edit suite. But mm-hmm. here, if if you're doing it all separately, it's a good question. What's what's happening that you're you're shooting with the iPhone, and where is the audio capturing? Is it capturing into the iPhone? Is it going through an audio interface? Um, you know, when when that movie Tangerine was shot for Sundance, they used a yeah. uh, lens that basically is a, a 1.33 times anamorphic adapter. Yeah, and what that does is it it squeezes the video so that you get that nice. Um, widescreen view cinematic yeah, yeah. The cinematic uh 20 to whatever the ratio is yeah. and then you have to de squeeze it and edit and you know those those lenses are really not expensive in the scheme of things but the good no. question is did he shoot using one of those did he shoot using something else because part of it comes down to the sensor of the camera and the other parts what's what's the glass you're using
0: you know what's what's the lens and, and don't forget tangerine was shot on iphone 5s too yeah so so many questions that I have. What app did he use? Did he use Apple's built-in camera app? Probably not. He probably used something else. I would love to find that out. Was it a 7S or a 7 or, or something else? I'm guessing the 7S. And then think of the advantages that he would have had with the 7S um, compared to what Tangerine was shot him with the 5S. He's got dual cameras with a so, uh, uh, optical plus. zoom. Uh, yeah, 7 Plus. Sorry. Um, dual cameras with an optical zoom. Um, and then he's got uh, optical image stabilization in there. Um, and then you you know potentially hook that up to a gimbal of some type, which I'm guessing he was using, which makes it even more stable footage. And it shoots in 4K. <laughs> so I mean, how awesome is that as a filmmaker's tool, right? A 4K pocketable camera that you can connect a bunch of accessories to to get the best quality footage out of it. It's it's stunning.
1: Yeah, and we we've never even reviewed one of those lenses. We've we've never tried to get one of those anamorphics,
0: have we? No be something I would be curious to check out though.
1: I'm going to contact those guys.
0: And don't forget if you get the iPhone 8 Plus or the iPhone 10, now it also does 4K at 24p. So with the new HEVC encoding, you can shoot shoot at 24 frames per second, which is what most feature films are shot at, which gives it more of this like dreamlike quality. So rather than going in a lot of films it's, are it's going a now
1: cinematic and, look versus soap opera look basically.
0: Yeah, a lot of films are going in this 48 to 60 frames per second uh, direction. Uh, I know that Peter Jackson did that uh, in shooting The Hobbit films, but uh, the way people reacted to it was very poorly. I I think Jim Cameron is doing um, the new Avatar films at 48 frames per second as well. Uh, But a lot of people saw it, and, and like you said, it had that soap opera feel to it. Um, for people that like a more traditional classic film feel when you're watching something, um, the newer phones can shoot at 24p, which is pretty exciting too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm just interested in the lens now. Because that's that's what gives you your image, basically.
0: And and to be clear, I don't work in film or anything like that. <laughs> so I've had people complain in the past when I talk about Hollywood that I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't claim to be an expert, but I understand the difference between 24p and 48 and 60 and those sorts of things. So give me a little credit, please. <laughs> All
1: right. iPhone 10 shipments are improving for two to three weeks.
0: Yeah. I mean, this seems like a normal story. This
1: doesn't seem like an exciting story because – the the we we all expected that the iPhone shipments would improve, right? That's that's just a natural part of things catching up with orders.
0: The rumors were that Apple wasn't going to catch up with shipments on the iPhone 10 until some point in the first half of 2018. And it certainly looks like they're catching up much much faster than that. So, while it doesn't look like a great story, um, that's not really fair to Apple because this is a monumental achievement. Um And, I mean, don't forget that this is the latest that they've ever launched an iPhone, Uh, launched on November 3rd. They've never had one launched that late in the year. So they did that for a reason because they knew it was going to be tough to manufacture. And that extra time clearly paid dividends. So, you know, kudos to the folks in charge of operations there that get this uh, assembly line rolling uh, because they clearly knocked it out of the park. And these phones are shipping faster than people thought they were going to ship. Uh, and I mean, it's going to be a hu- it's going to be a monster quarter for Apple. Yeah,
1: I just, I, I, I don't feel, I feel like we were wrong on the uh, constrained supply side of the stories for this. That the thing that's really causing any kind of delays is just that there's a lot of demand.
0: Well, yeah, but I mean, again, the iPhone 10 launched six weeks after the iPhone 8. There's a reason for that. It was not just demand; it was difficulty in manufacturing. Apple didn't want to launch it six weeks later. I guarantee you that. Yes, they would have liked to have had those Day one. sales start in the in the September quarter, yeah. and they couldn't because they ran into manufacturing issues. So uh, they got it together quickly. Um, they ramped it up, and they're improving shipment times. And uh, you know, I think you're going to see over 80 million iPhone sales in this December quarter. It's going to be it's going to be a monster. It's going to be the biggest quarter in Apple's history, without question. Nice.
1: All right. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Learning, which now features every course from lynda.com, the leader in online learning with 20 years of experience. LinkedIn Learning is for problem solvers, for go-getters, for people who want to make moves in their career. Maybe you want to create infographics, improve your leadership skills, or redesign your website. Everything you need to achieve more is on LinkedIn Learning. If you use Adobe software, LinkedIn Learning has the most comprehensive selection of courses on Photoshop, Illustrator, After Effects, and more to help you improve everything from photo editing to vector graphics to 3D animation techniques. LinkedIn Learning works with publishers like Adobe to develop updated courses that publish with each new release. They offer dozens of series, including Graphic Design Tips and Tricks and Motion Graphics Weekly. And they have courses for all experience levels, covering a wide range of creative techniques, technical skills, business strategies, and more. I've been looking through this, I've been looking through the catalog and I've begun taking some of these courses. and you know I'm I'm interested in a wide range of things. I, mm-hmm. I've been focusing on blockchain. Mm-hmm. you know if you've been paying attention at all, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, gold, Bitcoin cash, uh, Ethereum, Litecoin, and these cryptocurrencies have been in the news recently. Yeah. The thing that's underlying all of that is a technology called blockchain, which is a distributed, ledger, essentially, yep. that each transaction is is hashed into the the blockchain. So you can audit it. You can check and roll it back and see what track transactions are made and where they went kind of thing. And right. it's it's useful not necessarily only for currency or monetary exchanges, but also can be useful for inventory. You know, there was a story a couple of weeks ago about FEMA using a, a blockchain so that disaster response teams could all see the inventory and not have to to call up and hunt around for where an asset is. Right, So that you could respond faster. So Mm. what's cool is that LinkedIn Learning has not just courses on Adobe, which is great that they have them, but courses on a wide range of topics. So if there's some topic you're interested in, you, you can find it probably within this huge catalog that LinkedIn Learning has. With a LinkedIn Learning membership, you can find the right video course from the extensive library. You can learn from industry experts who are passionate about teaching. You can explore course recommendations that are curated just for you. You can use project files and quizzes to validate your learning. And the courses are structured so you can learn from start to finish or jump to a specific chapter and watch bite-sized segments right in the middle. You learn at your own pace. Get transcripts for each video so you can watch, listen, and read along. And there are no hidden charges or upsells. You can just access all the courses you want for one monthly price, and it's available worldwide. So learn from anywhere from your computer, tablet, or mobile device. And we've got a special deal for you. You can get a free 30-day trial with LinkedIn Learning today by visiting linkedin.com slash insider. That's linkedin.com slash insider, all lowercase. And I want to thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Remember, when you support our sponsors, you make this podcast possible. Now, Neil, you're in Brooklyn, aren't you? I am. Are you happy that there's going to be a downtown Brooklyn Apple store nearby?
0: Yeah, not too far from me. Um, it's funny how Apple does this stuff because it's been known for a couple of years now that they were pursuing this site that they signed the lease, whatever, but... Uh, just as they are with uh, physical product launches, they treat their stores the same way. In fact, they've even said in interviews that they they view their stores as one of their products. And so in very much the same way that everyone knows everything about the new iPhone until it officially gets announced um, and Apple doesn't say anything, uh, we're in the same position here where everyone knows everything about this store, but Apple won't say that it's an Apple store yet. So kind of hilarious. They've wrapped the Apple logo in like a foil to try to hide it, but they wrapped it so tight. You can tell that it's an Apple logo underneath. Um, it's going to be, um, on, uh, it's in downtown Brooklyn, uh, right across from the Atlantic terminal, which is Brooklyn's biggest, uh, transportation hub, uh, right across the street from the Barclays center where the Brooklyn nets and New York Islanders play. Um, so it's a great location for them. It'll be Apple's second, uh, store in Brooklyn. Their first one opened last year in Williamsburg, and it will be, um, they're 11th, I believe, in New York City. Most of the stores are in Manhattan, um, but this will be the second in Brooklyn, which is good because uh, Brooklyn is New York's most populous borough. So,
1: And it saves you the trip back into the island, you know?
0: Yeah. So uh, keep keep your eyes peeled on Apple Insider. This thing is going to be open in any day. I would not be surprised if they announce, you know, while we're recording this, that the store is going to open soon because it's just about <laughs> finished. And I think that they're going to want to get uh, some Black Friday sales come next week. So um, I'm hoping to get an advanced look at the store. Um, you know, Again, Apple's being coy about it. So I reached out to him, like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm down the street. I'd like to take a look at this store. And they're like, don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, oh, come on. Store? What store? So we'll, we'll see. Um, but if and when it opens, uh, I'll have photos and stuff. So keep your eyes peeled for it. Of course,
1: Apple is, is known for when they design these things using as much glass as they can. And they want it to be structural and they want it to be... Floor to ceiling, kind of glass, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ground to roof. And they suffered a setback because uh, when one of these panes of glass shatters, it's kind of a big deal, isn't it?
0: Yeah. One of my in laws lives at a building next door to there and he's been kind of chronicling the progress for me. And so he was over here last week, which is where we got these photos of this shattered glass. Uh, so <laughs> it's like this massive, you know, floor to ceiling, custom cut pane of glass that completely shattered. Now, it didn't fall apart shatter because it's uh, uh, Well, it's safety glass. Yeah, safety glass, tempered glass, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, it's completely spiderwebbed the whole way up. And so someone was asking me on Twitter about, like, you know, the process or whatever. And so I looked into it and I found a, a glass magazine that did an article about uh, the special things Apple has to do for the glass for each of their stores, like the glass staircases and the chemically treated stuff they have to do and whatever. So I'm just wondering, I would love to know, because you know they're not going to open this store with a big shattered pane of glass up front, right? I mean, they'd be crazy well, to do no.
1: Not so, a chance.
0: you know, I mean, woe is Apple. They got, what, $270 billion in cash sitting somewhere. But still, I mean, how much money do they have to spend to go get this giant custom-made pane of glass made again and expedited in time to open the store? I would well, love and to find out. transported. Yeah. The transportation would, costs. I would love to find out what that cost because I am sure it was a pretty penny. Well, it's not cheap. I give you that. I don't know if they've fixed it yet because the photos that we had were as of Sunday night, and uh, we're recording this on Thursday now, so maybe I'll swing down there this weekend and see if they've bothered to fix it yet. But uh, yeah, I think that store's going to open any day. It's it's almost done, and I th- I'd have to think if they want to get some holiday sales and Black Friday. And so
1: Now, there have been a number of Face ID stories that people have latched onto.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: they, they've latched onto them because they, they're, they're, there's partly there's this emotional pull that some people feel they need to have to discredit Apple or... To, to point out flaws. Confirmation bias. Well, there's that. That's partly what's driving <laughs> it, right? So the, the first example of that was when Craig Federighi tried to demonstrate Face ID and found that it did not work to unlock his face in the Apple keynote when he was presenting it. And, and the reason, and they explained, was that too many other people had looked at the fa- the Face ID sensors when they were cleaning the phone and had caused it to reject and require the passcode. Which is how things are designed to work. Yeah. And this morning, early morning, my uh, my wife role, you know, woke me up and said, "What's all this about a ten year old being able to unlock his mother's phone with face ID? That shouldn't yeah. happen."
0: Yeah.
1: And you know, the the headlines around the world are that face ID is vulnerable and can be hacked and all this because a ten year old was able to unlock his mother's phone. And you know, I, what I explained to her was that that person took three attempts to be able to do it. And when you take three attempts and enter your passcode, you are training face ID. Yep. And so this is not I hacked face ID. This is I trained face ID to accept
0: myself and my son. To a face that looks very similar to my own because we're related yes. by blood. Yes. And if you look at the photo of these two people, um, they look similar. So it makes sense why that would be the case. Now, we don't really know, you know, until Apple gives a comment or – you know, dissects what's going on inside the phone. We don't know for sure, but we do know this. Face ID, just like with touch ID, because it can work from, you know, like think about how touch ID can work from different edges of your finger, right? And it has to match a certain percentage of your face or your fingerprint or whatever within a certain percentage of acceptability. And so your face from different angles may not look the same way as it does from other angles, but Face ID will look at it and say, "Okay, this is close enough to what we expect your face to look like." Therefore, we're going to let you in, and then it learns over time. So again, like well, you were especially
1: saying, if you've entered the passcode right after a failure like that. So
0: when it has you're a saying, failure, I'm
1: authenticated.
0: Yes. So one of the ways that it works is if it has a certain percentage of your face and says, oh, okay, we think it might be you, but not to the degree of of certainty that we feel comfortable with, when you enter your password, it then adds that and says, okay, so now we feel a little more confident about where your face is at. So if you have two people that look alike, and then you go through this practice of swapping the phone back and forth and trying multiple times and entering the password and doing that sort of thing, especially as it's going through this continuous learning process, machine learning... Uh, this is what you're going to get. So, I mean, you're, you're
1: training the phone to unlock on that other face.
0: Yeah. (sighs) People, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, Neil, we've talked for years about this. I I contend that the problem always begins with humans. That is probably accurate. It's just humans all the way down. (laughs) You've been using wireless charging in your
0: home. I have. I someone tweeted, how much do you like it? Someone someone tweeted at me yesterday because I said <laughs> how much I liked it on the on the podcast last week, and and someone who a listener was very pleased to hear that. I will admit when I am wrong, and uh, I was wrong. I did not think I would like wireless charging. Uh, I I have docks, I like using my docks, but docking and undocking a phone, not as convenient as just setting it down on a wireless charger when I'm at my desk. I don't use a wireless charger when I go to bed, I use a dock for that, but I do use a wireless charger on my desk and my phone's just always 100%. Whereas a lot of times I'd sit here and then by the end of the day, because the signal sucks in New York, I would end up at like, you know, 60% battery and and then I'm going out somewhere with my phone or whatever. Now it just sits on the wireless charger and it's always topped off. It's great, I love it.
1: And are your wireless charging units the ones that support the 7.5 watt?
0: You know, I looked into that before we recorded, and I don't think mine is. I thought that I got the 7.5 watt one, but I guess not. But it doesn't really matter because if I really wanted to fast charge it, I have a dock that's like a foot away from it. So
1: yeah. So what's going on here is that when Apple released the 8 and 8 Plus and, and 10, Wireless charging is enabled, but it's enabled at a slower speed, about the 1-amp the or 5-watt speed. Yep. And in the 11.2 beta of iOS, Apple is enabling 7.5-watt support.
0: Which is exciting because uh, it's actually faster than the 5-watt adapter that Apple ships in the box.
1: It's still slower than the 15-watt maximum that that Qi wireless charging supports.
0: Right. and mu- And much slower than the... USB 3.0 power capabilities of the Lightning port, uh, which work with Apple's 29-watt adapter.
1: Yes, but nonetheless, having faster wireless charging is desirable.
0: Yeah, and and if that's what we're going to get, 7.5, um, and not have a Galaxy Note 8 situation where it blows up, cool. And we still don't know
1: what the wattage will be on Apple's own wireless charging pad. The I that imagine was coming sometime the in the
0: spring. Yeah, probably the same, the air power. Yeah, the, it's
1: probably the same 7.5 watt you expect.
0: Yeah, so air power is to key charging as um, Bluetooth is to the W1 chip, which is to say that there are certain limits of the wireless charging standard um, that Apple gets around. So, for example, with a regular wireless charging pad, you cannot charge multiple devices at once. So, Apple, come next year, will have three wirelessly chargeable devices, well, I guess uh, more more than three, but they'll have the iPhone 8, the iPhone 8 Plus, the iPhone 10, but they'll also have Apple Watch Series 3 and um, uh, a new case for AirPods. And so with current wireless wireless chargers, you cannot charge all those at once, but with the uh, AirPower, you'll be able to put your phone, your watch, and your AirPods down on it, and they'll charge at the same time. I'm
1: glad you mentioned AirPods. I actually saw something interesting, and I don't know if you've seen this before. Um,
0: someone figured out a new use for your AirPods case. <laughs> I saw this and I tried it. It was a little precarious. I wouldn't recommend it. Oh, should we talk about it at all? That's fine. I mean, if someone someone figured out that if you open up your AirPods case and kind of wedge your phone in there with it open in the hinge, in the hinge it'll kind of stand on it. Um, but like I was talking about earlier, with how slippery the iPhone 10 is. Um, I did not, it did not seem super sturdy. You didn't feel comfortable. I, I mean, I wouldn't do it on an airplane. No, still pretty sharp that they noticed that. I mean, <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah, like, I, like I, I know, you know it's, what else you can do? Lean it against the box that it comes in. Oh, <gasps> wow. All right. <laughs> and you have to pay $170 on. for that. Moving on. So this is something
1: that I I expect we will hear Neil do next week. But, okay. Um, uh, after a nasty crash with a landing in a great white shark nursery area, a kite, cipher, a kite surfer used his Series 3 Apple Watch with LTE to call rescuers and bring them to his location.
0: Yeah, this is a cool human interest story. I mean, nothing f- fancy. It's just guy had his Apple Watch, didn't have his phone, um, was able to get data and, and cellular and make a call because of the LTE connection in the, in the Series 3. It saved his bacon. So that's pretty cool. I mean, being
1: a mile out offshore and going down and not being able to get the uh, the kite back up again, being able to call for help is really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great use for the product. A good free advertisement for Apple. I,
1: I would not want to try and swim back after an hour. <laughs> <to be laughs> no, a mile that be, no, that would be a problem. I, I love the quote here. This is a great quote. Uh, I've seen people put phones in waterproof cases, but I didn't want to risk it. So when the watch came out, I thought, this is awesome. I should do it. My wife was giving me a hard time for buying more technology, but I leave my phone at home a lot now. That guy is going to have an Apple Watch for the rest of his life, and his <laughs> wife will never say a single word about it again.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is very freeing to be able to leave your phone at home. Um, I run with my watch without, uh, without my phone, and, and it's great. You know, um, Sometimes you need to have connection with somebody. Sometimes it's important to have a phone call. Um, or get that text message or whatever. So it's nice to be connected.
1: Definitely. Now, we haven't talked about HomePod in a couple of weeks. No, we haven't. And one of the reasons why I think that is, first of all, there's just not a whole lot in the way of rumors about it. And, and second of all, we're still figuring out what it's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. What, what's the use for this thing? It's, first of all, it's $349. We mm-hmm. know that much. And it's a, a music speaker. Mm-hmm. That also happens to have Siri mm-hmm. and does really good at detecting the room that it's in and being able to to EQ and balance itself for the shape of the room mm-hmm. and the reflections of audio. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, what really differentiates this from a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa kind of product is, is a little difficult to say at this point for us. Practically, what's the, the differentiation other than being a really, really well-accomplished music speaker when none of the others are? kind of thing. Uh, it's it's hard for us to know right now. And so we haven't been able to talk about it a whole lot without having had experience with it. But we've got a rumor that says that Face ID could be added to it. And this this sent our commenters into kind of a tizzy, you know, just not seeing the need for facial recognition on a device that's going to sit on a shelf. So, what what's the use there? What do you think is going on?
0: I, you know, this is a, um, a Apple supplier who said that they see uh, in the future demand for home assistance with facial recognition scanners. And that was interpreted by people to say, Oh, Apple's going to make a speaker with face ID. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen in the near future. I see the home pod as one of those devices that, uh, was kind of future proofed from the beginning. They put an a eight chip in there, which is a hugely powerful chip for something that doesn't even have a real screen on it. um, and I think that you know, whether it's through software updates or um, improvements in the cloud uh, with Siri, I think that this is a product that will be static for two, maybe even three years to come, much like with the Apple TV and how they take a while between updates on that. So and especially face ID, automatically scanning people in the room is something that would make people uncomfortable. You know Apple is the company that makes you hold down a button to talk to Siri on your uh, on your Apple TV r- remote. So, um, I, I don't think that there's going to be Face ID in the HomePod anytime soon. It's interesting to think about what you could use it for, what the practical application would be. But the, the thing hasn't even shipped yet. <laughs> we don't even have the yeah. HomePod in we, our homes. We don't, so. we don't
1: have version one, and we're already talking about a version two.
0: Yeah, and, and I nice. think that you know Apple is not going to update the HomePod at all in 2018. May, maybe adjust the pricing or expand the lineup. But I think that what you're getting now is the way that it'll be for two, three years. I think that that's by design with the processor that they're putting in there, um, mm. it will have better capabilities. That does, that does give me an opportunity to say that Siri is still mostly garbage when it comes to understanding what I'm trying to say. You know, I was out on a run the other day, and uh, I had my watch, and my watch does Siri with, you know, LT and all that. And I told it to play a specific artist and a specific album, and it just it didn't understand it. And it's like, and I said it like three times, and then it started playing the right album, but it did it out of order like rather than starting with track one it just shuffled the album which i didn't ask it to do and it was just like i found myself just getting frustrated so i just paused my run and then just manually went and selected the music and if this thing is meant to be a voice-driven music player uh, and that's how siri is going to work it's gonna it's gonna need some work and uh you know that's something that can be fixed with software updates and in the cloud and it should be and hopefully very soon but we've been saying that for years so i'm not holding my breath
1: yeah so here, here's my perception. and my, my perspective is that voice is great, but it's one of these things where if it's right 95% of the time, it is wrong still too much. That yeah, you, you, you easily forget about all the times that it just works for you, but you remember the times that it lets you down, especially when they are really dumb errors. You know, when th- it responds very stupidly saying, I'm sorry – I don't know what you mean by play the next song or what song is this. You know, if you're if you're standing there, Google Assistant, for example, has the uh, Shazam kind of functionality where you mm-hmm. can say, "Hey, what song playing?" and it will tell you the song that's playing. Yeah, and Siri if you try does that and too. do that with Siri, right? Except when it doesn't work. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Is that when it fails, you you just want to forget everything because it's all terrible,
0: right? Part, part of the problem, too, is as you become more familiar with this stuff, the you learn what it wants you to say. And so I don't usually use Siri to pick yeah, music. Yeah, that's terrible, too. Right. I agree. I don't usually use Siri to pick music. And so when I decided to try it the other day, I didn't want to break my stride while I was out on a run. And I said, well, let me just talk to it. And then it didn't work. I told it to play an album called Outrage Is Now. And it interpreted that, that as outrageous now. And and I said it like six times and it wait, couldn't wait, get Wait, right.
1: I need to make... The three words, outrage is, is now. now. Yes. And it understood outrageous now.
0: Correct. Yeah. Radical. And I, and I said the name of the artist beforehand. And so that's one of those things where a truly intelligent machine learning, whatever, personal assistant should know that. That based on the artist that I said and the closeness of proximity of the names that what I was talking about, like it should be able to figure that out. Okay, you misheard me, but you can put two and two together.
1: Yeah, well, I'm still hung up on annoyed by the idea that you have to know the syntax to speak.
0: Yeah, I, well, <laughs> th- th- but that's the thing too. Like HomeKit works really great for me, but I use it all the time. So I know what it's expecting and I know what I named all of the rooms and appliances that I use for HomeKit. So I'm familiar with the lingo. But if I were to tell Whoa. a random person, oh, go ahead and use you know your phone to turn off the lights, they'd be like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what this is. Well, I don't know what to do. A, a
1: classic example of that is I, I. we both have the front door lock. We both have the Schlage Sense installed. Yeah. And I named it door. Yeah. Yeah. So I can say, you know, Siri, open the door Yeah, and it will work. But if someone wanted to be more specific and say, Siri, open the front door. Mm-hmm. It all falls apart. I don't know what a front door is. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that.
0: <sighs> Garbage. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Garbage. it's got a long way to go. Um, but because these things are in the cloud, you know, you got to remain hopeful, uh, that it will eventually get addressed and it'll get better. But, and, and I'm sure that somebody's going to listen to this and say, oh, well, when it comes to music, you should have said this. Okay, great. L-
1: let me know Again, those commands.
0: Because I, you know. Why
1: should you have to know the syntax? The, the goal of this is to get to a point, and maybe we're a couple of years away, maybe we're a little longer than that. But the point is that you shouldn't have to know the syntax if we're talking about a voice-first interface. You know, that was the problem of the command line. We started years ago with the command line, and you had to know the exact correct syntax to issue a command and have it execute the way you intended. And if you missed a character or you typed the wrong command, you deleted your hard drive.
0: And it also can't handle complex compound requests. So if I tell it, like, you know, turn off my bedroom and living room lights, it freaks out. It's like, I can't do that. I can't do any of it.
1: And right. It's- and, and the Amazon Alexa path to doing that is to say you need to group your bedroom and living room lights and then just call them by a name for the group.
0: Yeah, those are the kind of things but where but again,
1: it's that that having to know the syntax or know the tricks. I, I, if it's going to terrible. be
0: if it's going to be meaningful, it needs to work with true natural language. It does not need to have you memorize anything except for the command to prompt it. Other than that, it should be able to contextually learn what you're trying to say. And Google Assistant does a much better job of that, and the reason it does a much better job of it is because Google doesn't care as much about your privacy as Apple does. There is that So it's much easier for their researchers to have access to data on that kind of information because Google collects it in spades, whereas Apple does not.
1: Now, one of the interesting things is that we're coming up on the holiday season. We're coming up on Black Friday Mm -hmm. in America. We're coming up on uh, Cyber Monday in America. And, and of course, the holiday sales all the way following that. And we know that Amazon Dot and the Google Home Mini are both going to be priced down around the $29 mark. Yeah, And so you've got two very reasonable, competent, more or less, uh, voice assistant speaker products that are both integrated with multimedia. You can control the the TV device, whether it's a Chromecast or a Fire Stick, for example. Mm-hmm. From that speaker, they play music. They, they do all the things that you'd expect for a voice assistant kind of speaker to do. And they're $29 compared with the HomePod for 349 that's arriving in December which and is, missing out on which is marketed more as sales. a
0: speaker than an assistant
1: yeah a full music speaker yeah. kind of thing but everyone knows it's got an assistant in it so it's it's you know we saw this play out with the TV products right we saw Apple have the super high end expensive device and everyone else battling over the low end yeah And and there's there's a cost to that yes you make more money yes you have a more boutique device but at the same time you you definitely are giving up customer base.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we talked about this before, and I think that the the way that they might be able to address this going forward is not only sell a cheaper speaker that is more driven toward being a personal assistant, but also to allow third party manufacturers to license, especially because Siri is done in the cloud. You could have some sort of an authenticated handshake between the device and Apple servers to control Siri um, to have it work as you might expect. Um, and to do that in a range of products that Apple is not interested in getting into, in the same way that uh, they're not going to look to make every AirPlay two speaker, you know, um, they'll license. Well this is
1: this is absolutely what drove the adoption of putting Alexa in products and now Google Home in products, is that you can run the Alexa assistant, you can run the Google Home assistant on a Raspberry Pi.
0: And and aside from Siri integration there is no real difference between the HomePod and an AirPlay 2 speaker. So, um, I mean, I, you know, obviously you have the technology and whatever else in there, but in terms of the license, It depends
1: on, do you have the right CPU or the right amount of uh, yeah. stuff? Do you have the far field mics? Yeah. There, there's a little bit of accessories. W- there. Sure,
0: but, but, I, but I'm saying that somebody could basically make a HomePod competitor that does AirPlay 2, license it from Apple and have everything but Siri. Um, that would be technically possible. Apple needs to figure out a way to securely license access to Siri in its MFI products. Um, And I think that is how they combat that cheap uh, Google Home, Amazon Echo dot situation. Whether or not they do that, I don't know. But I mean, Apple's never going to sell a $30 speaker, Siri assistant, never.
1: All right. It's cold up in Brooklyn.
0: It's getting there. A little chilly.
1: How do you like using that iPhone ten in the cold? It's Terrible. Are you using the touchscreen gloves? Are you? What are you doing to be able to use all the swipes when it's dead cold outside? Well,
0: uh, I went out the other night and it was so cold that the phone was not functional. So I stopped in a uh, bank ATM closed area just to warm up my phone so I could so I could get a car. That's how bad it is. So the iPhone ten has a problem that the screen does not work well and becomes unresponsive in cold weather. Uh, thank goodness that it, this is apparently something that can be fixed through software. Um, because if it was a hardware problem, it's going to be a long <laughs> winter. Uh, but Apple says it will be fixed in a forthcoming software update. So fingers crossed that's in 11.2 because since it got cold in the last couple weeks, uh, iPhone 10, uh, trying to type on that thing and, and just use apps, mm, not fun. It, you know, like less than 50% of my taps on the screen are, are registered properly. So that's not good and we're not talking we're not talking freezing temperatures we're talking you know uh high 30s low 40s kind of stuff so um within the operating range of the of the phone supposedly uh not functional so uh i would hope that that firmware update comes out soon because that is a problem
1: definitely people expect that they can use their phone in a number of weather conditions and you have to be able to do it so
0: yeah yeah this is, you know if it's uh, in the 20s or something i get it but 40 degrees is, should be okay. That should be an operating temperature. I agree. Apple didn't really offer a timetable for that patch though. No, they didn't and it I They say it could be fixed with software. So, I believe them. Got no reason to doubt them. We'll see what happens. It's only getting colder. I know.
1: Now, Steven Sinofsky, who is the former president of Microsoft's Windows division. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was president during the Windows 7 um, the the Longhorn development mm-hmm. era that was became Vista eventually. He he's seen some tough times over through Microsoft's uh, OS team, yeah. and you know he it really gives me a great appreciation for just how hard it is to develop a new version of an operating system. Yeah. How many different teams you have to herd? How many? It, it's it's in in some ways it's really uh, unbelievable that anything gets released at all. Sometimes that's true. You know it's just insurmountable all the things you have to push to get something to actually come out and and much less come out and be stable and useful and people want to use it. Mm-hmm. And he, knowing all of his experience with operating systems, knowing what it is to release those things, has a quote. He had a series of quotes, actually. But the observation is that iPhone 10 is simply joyful to use. Apple deserves massive credit for inventing a new paradigm on top of the most successful one ever. You know, he referenced the original Macintosh, the... Uh, you know, people used to complain about the mouse. The mouse is yet another in a long line of computer devices that try to make our work easier and more efficient. I'm not convinced that it will. And and that was written, you know, in 1984 and was from that area where the command line reigned supreme. But we have this progression where, where there was the command line and then the mouse and then touch and then voice. And we're in this touch and voice era at the moment. Mm-hmm. And what what I would say is that each one of these interface revolutions is about making technology more accessible to a broader range of people, mm-hmm. you know, and instead of having to know the arcane commands to, to issue something in a terminal command and turn command line interface, um, instead of knowing where to click and where to click and drag and where to triple click and, and where to triple click, middle click, scroll click, right. That our vocabulary becomes one that is more discoverable touch, swipe, you know, the the interface uses that were made on iPhone 10 that allow you to touch and swipe relatively intuitively, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what we were complaining about with voice is that it's not intuitive yet, that it's not approachable yet because the syntax requirement is there. So this is is interesting both from the standpoint of someone observing who's got a long history of operating system development, and also it's
0: interesting because, well, it comes from the the former reigning supreme competing company, right? Mm-hmm. And in and, and all the examples that you gave, Apple was not the first to do things, but they were the ones to popularize those things, including most recently, um, obviously, touch screens with your finger. But also, don't forget that personal assistants on phones were not really a thing until Siri came out. So
1: I agree. Not everyone is happy about that, though. Of course not. <laughs> Can you name someone who's unhappy? Our readers? Our readers, <laughs> yes.
0: Not our dear listeners. We love
1: those guys. Mm-hmm. What about Gizmodo?
0: Uh, are you talking about their uh, review of uh, the Google headphones, whatever those things are called?
1: Well, no, I was still on their review of the iPhone ten, where they call it a user experience nightmare.
0: Oh, well, whatever. It's it's a it's a pro device, a pro user device, early adopter device. Device, um, as we talked about before. Actually, getting rid of the head of the the uh, home button will be difficult, and it will be interesting to see how the market responds to that.
1: Yeah, well, Gizmodo still has an axe to grind. Basically, you know, they they wrote uh, an article entitled "We Don't Need the iPhone X. Um, they they are still. Really, kind of upset. They said the iPhone 10 is a sham. It's the fluff over function, <laughs> All right. the epitome of fluff over function. Okay, Penulti- penultimate step in Apple's downward spiral yeah, right. towards replacing the Ramsey and less is more with more and more more. Yep. Uh, historically, it's worth keeping in mind that Gizmodo were the guys that paid for the stolen iPhone 4s, mm-hmm. and they're they're still ticked off. You know, do you really need a 5.8 inch OLED display? Um, Yes. Yes, you do. Especially if you can have one. And listen, I know a lot of the guys
0: um, at Gizmodo and and there's a, there's a big market out there for uh, articles that have an inflammatory headline that you either want to agree with or disagree with. And there's a big market of people out there who don't read beyond the headline as well. Um, and that's not to say that anybody is doing anything bad or wrong, but... Uh, the way that these things are written is done with purpose. And um, if you have seen some websites out there, you know, uh, some of the more egregious offenders are places like you know Bleacher Report or wherever, which is how the sausage is made there is some editor writes a headline that will show up well in Google News and get shared a lot, and then they assign it to a writer and say, you write this uh, based on the headline, uh, SEO-driven content. Um, Hey, it's a tough market out there. People got to make a living. You got to keep the lights on. I get it. Uh, We try to shy away from that kind of stuff at Apple Insider. Um, It's not really the way that we do things. Um, We do have people that write editorials for us that uh, sometimes are more inflammatory, uh, but it's usually longer form content, too, um, and, you know, well thought out opinion pieces and stuff. So uh, like I said before, um, with respect to Bloomberg, I'm not going to. Cast stones here uh, <laughs> at, at Gizmodo. Yeah. Um, I, I I I will say that I disagree respectfully with their sentiment and I'm very happy with my iPhone ten in ways that I did not even expect to be happy with my iPhone ten. I think it's a great device.
1: Yeah. Well, conveniently for me, there's a interview that just was released with Johnny Ive defending ditching the home button. Yeah. And so we, we've got Gizmodo on the one side saying, you know, the, this is a downward spiral into uh, – away from the Ramsey and less is more sentiment. Mm-hmm. And Ive, who who pretty much – I can't think of a better representative than, than Rams Dieter himself, is the one practicing and personifying the, the less is more sentiment in design right now. Right? He's, he's out there mm-hmm. creating these designs that Dieter Rams himself has been very happy mm-hmm. with. So – he says that that I I think actually the path of holding on to features that have been effective, the path of holding on to those, whatever the cost, is a path that leads to failure, I've explained. And in the short term, it's the path that feels res- risky, and it's the path that feels more secure. It's not necessarily the most comfortable place to be in when you believe there's a better way. Mm-hmm. That means moving on from something that has felt successful.
0: The home button so, is a crutch for people who are not technically savvy. And when you're selling, you know— 80 million phones in a quarter as Apple will do this year. There are a lot of people that are not technically savvy that are buying your phone. So how that is addressed going forward, I don't know. You know, there's a whole group of people out there who have never heard of control center, have never swiped from the edge of their screen. uh, And it would blow their mind if you showed it to them. I've showed my mom how to use control center in the flashlight many times, and she still doesn't really understand it. And she has a flashlight app that she uses because it's easier for her.
1: I was about to ask about
0: that. So, you know, You have to keep those kinds of users in mind. Um, Sometimes when you grow up with technology or you use it a lot, you can't appreciate the people that don't really do that kind of stuff. So, for example, a few years ago, I really thought I loved the Uncharted video game series, right? And I had my wife play Uncharted 2 because I thought it was a fantastic video game. Just great storytelling, just peak uh, great video game experience at the time that it came out, uh, arguably the most cinematic Um, most human video game that had ever been made in terms of the characters and and just the thrill of it. Right. So I was like, you got to play this game. You got to check this out. And she just could not handle the camera because you use two sticks, one to manage the camera and one to control the character. Well, I've been playing video games for my whole life and yeah, it didn't start out with two sticks, but it naturally evolved to that state where, um, you know, we had our basic NES or even before that, a Atari controller, And then um, we eventually got, you know, a thumbstick on a Nintendo 64. Then Sony came along with the DualShock with two thumbsticks. And now every controller has two thumbsticks. And so I've been doing this for, you know, the last 20 years or whatever. It's second nature to me. But I also had, I lived through the evolution of it. Or if you're starting out now playing video games and you're an early adopter and you're excited about that stuff, you take the time to learn, even though it takes some skill and some whatever. And so I've been playing, you know, recently I've been playing... um, Uh, the new Mario game for the Switch, and I've appreciated how the camera automatically manages, and I'm cognizant of that now because I saw the frustration of somebody who didn't know how to manage the camera. And so it brings me joy when I see it done well, where it's like, okay, this new Mario game is a true 3D game, but you don't have to touch the camera. It swings around in ways intelligently that makes it so somebody who's not as good with controlling the camera. Yes, you can still control the camera if you want, but if you're not good at it, it does a little bit of hand-holding there. And There's a big divide between people that play games all the time that don't want any of that hand-holding and think that Nintendo is kids' stuff versus people that just want to pick up a game and have fun and play it. And that's gonna be the challenge for Apple going forward as they introduce these new things and evolve the technology. There are people that are gonna take it for granted who are early adopters, who have no trouble learning these things, who find pleasure in that, and enjoy growing in their experience using these things. And there are some people who are gonna pick it up having never done it before, it doesn't make sense with them, it doesn't click, they don't get it, they can't remember it, it's frustrating and it makes the experience worse. And so I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen with the iPhone 10 going forward. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe people have no issue with this, but you have to consider that there are these people out there that don't live technology the way that we do. And the way that they use their devices is very different than the way we use our devices. And they may not be okay with 3D camera and Uncharted, no matter how bad they want to play it.
1: Absolutely. Now, shifting gears again, because you were talking about control center, and I know you use... uh You use the Home app and and HomeKit control through Control Center. You have a rather custom HomeKit setup where you've been using the Logitech Harmony Hub. I was. To control your (laughs) entertainment center with a Raspberry Pi that runs a HomeBridge setup to be able to do
0: all that. I was. And at some point, whether it was a, a HomeBridge Linux update or an iOS update, something broke it. And I went back to try to fix it. And every I don't program a lot or do anything like that. And every time I have to go, well, it's more sysadmin. Well, than anything, yeah, really, yeah. And and every time I have to go back and figure out, you know, what the GitHub commands are to do something and to install, and then I have to go in and customize, you know, certain files and settings. And I have to relearn it every time because I don't do it every day, so I forget. So unfortunately, my homebridge setup broke, but I did have it working for a while where uh, non HomeKit devices were playing nice with. Siri, including my Logitech Harmony Hub, which would allow me to use my voice to turn on and off devices in my entertainment center and to adjust the volume and stuff like that, which was really neat.
1: So, what you can do is SSH into your Raspberry Pi, back up your config files for Homebridge, and then reinstall it, and then copy your config files back, and you should be back in business. Yeah,
0: but there are, there there are updates too to the Homebridge plugins, and then you have to go back. It's a it's a process. I gotta yeah. I, I gotta anyway. spend a weekend and. and set it up again because i liked it
1: yes but the, the point of this is the greater story harmony link was a product that preceded the harmony home hub right and harmony link relied on the cloud service to operate yes and when logitech decides not to renew the security certificate for the cloud service essentially decommissioning it all those devices break yes so this this comes down to sort of the essential question is when you buy something what do you own
0: yeah uh, you know um it's a tough situation and I felt bad for Logitech and they got a lot of bad publicity out of this, even though it wasn't really their fault um, in many ways. It's just the way the product was designed and how it worked. But this is a product that the, the original link that connected to your iPhone and allowed you to use your iPhone or your iPad to you know control your TV, do whatever like that, and It's since been replaced with a different product that, that works better. Um, and, th- you know, the certificate was going to expire next year. And so as of next March, all these Harmony links were just, no they're going to be bricked, essentially. Magic um, get a lot of bad publicity out of this um, from people who, you know, I don't even know how many of them actually still use their Harmony link. I'm sure that some of them did, obviously. I, I want
1: to say deservedly so, because I, I know people so. that use it and were distressed by this.
0: Yeah. And, and no, if it's part of your daily routine, I get it. Believe me. I understand. Um But at what point, you know, are they obligated to to continue to support these things? I I don't know.
1: Well, when the the thing isn't that it was it was being discontinued because of a security certificate that expired. So instead of renewing the certificate cert and keeping it up, they just decided to brick everything. And that it seems like certs are not hard. Renewing certs is not a big deal. This could have been kept alive. It seems like they were just decommissioning them to push people to purchase a new one. It's a bad taste in your mouth as a consumer.
0: Kind I think that's a bit of a conspiracy theory, but that's fine. That's fine. Well, it doesn't matter. The, 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 end, the end of the story is Logitech made it right. And if you own a Harmony Link, they're going to mail you a free Harmony Hub, which is more than they had to do. So good on, good on Logitech. I think it was a wise move in the, in the long run. Um, I think it bodes well for people that buy future Logitech products. I think Logitech is by and large a pretty good company. Um, and it, you can see that Apple still feels the same way because they have been partnering closely with Logitech on accessories recently. Um, and I think that uh, you know they made right by their customers. And so regardless of how you feel about how we got here, um, they did the right thing in the end. And anybody that has a Harmony link can get a free Harmony Hub. And if you want to hack it and run it with HomeKit, uh, just don't update your Raspberry Pi and it'll work pretty well.
1: Wait, 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 back up a step. The don't update your Raspberry Pi step is (laughs) scary
0: to me. Well, I'm just saying that's what broke it for me, so.
1: Well, there are all sorts of good security reasons to to have an updated, I mean, it's a Linux system. I was being facetious. Thank you. Yes,
0: it's fine. (sighs) Send my heart into palpitations, (laughs) why don't you? I'm annoyed by the fact that it doesn't work anymore, but I'll live. You knew what you were getting into. I know, I know. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of
1: another perfectly good episode of the Apple Insider podcast. Neil Hughes, where can
0: people find you on the internet? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at thisisneil, and you can read my stuff at appleinsider.com. I'm Victor Marks. You can also
1: read my writings at appleinsider.com, and I podcast here and uh, a couple other great places as well. We'll be back next week with a whole lot more. Thank you so much for listening. Neil's going to go to the ATM and warm his phone now.
0: (laughs)